Welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. This is episode 804, my interview with Judy Grizel. She's a neuroscientist and the author of Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. I hope you enjoy. G'day, 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 and welcome to another interview on the Hidden White Podcast. I hope you're very well. Guys, today is a, just an outstanding interview. Um, I loved it. I got a lot out of it. Uh, very insightful. I speak with Judy Grizel. She's recently authored her book called Never Enough, and it's the neuroscience and experience of addiction. Now, she's got an incredible story herself. She went through some severe addiction uh, when she was very young, from 13 to 23, and she overcame that as well, and she became a neuroscientist and now looks into the work of drug addiction and trying to understand why certain behaviors and patterns form differently in different people, men and women, different age brackets, etc. It's really insightful, guys. I loved it. I got a lot out of it. I think it's inspirational. I think it leaves you questioning, um, you know, what else is there to do? Um, and certainly if you yourself um, struggle with some sort of addiction or maybe you know someone, then I reckon you'll get a lot out of having a read of her book as well, titled Never Enough. Guys, I've also got my book coming out soon. It's um, now at the editing desk getting put into a book and hopefully then it'll be released uh, as a Kindle version first and foremost and then after that a printable version as well. Guys, if you have any questions, reach out. Otherwise, enjoy this interview with Judy Grizel, an internationally recognized behavioral neuroscientist and the professor of psychology at Bucknell University. Cheers. G'day, Judy, and welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. It's awesome to have you here. And uh, look, Judy, really excited to, to bring you on the show and introduce you to my audience. Um, I've, I came across your book online when I was doing some searches on Amazon, and your new book that's just been released is called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, which um, personally I can relate to in a lot of ways. I know a lot of the listeners out there can probably relate to, whether it's you know ourselves or people that we know that have um, gone through addiction of whatever that might be. Uh, really important topic, so that's why I'm excited to have you on here. Not to mention, you know, you get to study the neuroscience behind addiction as well, which I find absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, thanks for coming on, and, and I look forward to the conversation. It's always hard to know where to start these conversations, Judy, but I, I suppose where, where I really want to start is, you know, why why have you written this book? And I, I sort of know a little bit of background into your journey, but what made you get to the point of writing this book and doing the work that you do? Well, it's a, a little bit of a long story, and I'll try to make it very quick. I um, began using drugs with uh, determination at about 13, and I used with determination. years. Yes. I, from the very beginning, I was, I was quite avid and um, determined. And as a result, after only 10 years, I ended up um, being kicked out of three schools uh, contracting hepatitis C, um, being homeless, um, not having any respect for myself, and no one else did either. So I kind of lost everything pretty quickly. Um, and I ended up in treatment. And at the time, this was in the 1980s, I, I kind of thought it was going to be like a spa. I didn't know what treatment was, but it wasn't anything like a spa. It was uh, more like a hospital for sick people, and I learned there that I had a problem that was killing me, and that if I wanted to try to live, I would have to stop using drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And I I thought that, never mind, I mean, I'd rather die. I think this is where addiction takes people, where they can't live with their use, and they don't want to live without it, and I was really at that place. At 23. So... At, at just 23, yeah, yeah. I was basically I'd finished my 22nd year. So I, I thought, um, and this is still funny to me, but um, you know, addicts can be very entrepreneurial and and tenacious. And I thought, I can fix this. If I have a disease, diseases can be cured. So you know, I'll just I'll give myself seven years. I'll take all the advice they have, and in the meantime, I'll fix this problem so that I can use. So and, we're talking um, about addiction as a as being a disease. <laughs> well, that is um, what I learned in treatment, and I think I know disease has kind of a lot of different connotations now. It's a little confusing to me um, because 
I tend not to get um, hung up so much on the words. Mm. I think words are important, but I also know as a scientist that there are words that we throw around all the time that we don't understand. One of them is stress, for instance. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows what stress is, but we all know what it is. And I think disease... (laughs) You know, it's kind of what is a disease. I, in some ways, you could say it's a dis-ease. Um, I think for me, what I mean by that is that the costs of my using definitely outweighed the benefits, and yet I kept doing it. Mm. Um, so I was going to be dead soon, probably. And um, anyway, I heard that, and they suggested abstinence, and I thought it was a terrible suggestion, so I figured I'm going to do this temporary thing for a few years um, and fix it. Yeah. Which, as I said, I, I had the most spotty record you could imagine. I mean, lots of failed classes, and I left through schools. And, but anyway, I was determined. So I ended up graduating with my bachelor's after seven years, and then my Ph.D. took another seven, and then I did a postdoc. And then I was a professor at a university, and, um, you know, somewhere not too far down the road, probably three or four or five years down the road, I realized, well, I'm not solving this too quickly. Um, seven years came, and I uh, reevaluated, and I realized my life was a billion times better, even though it wasn't perfect. So I kind of kept going. Um, Are you still addicted then, to certain substances? Um, well, I'm not dependent on them, but I um, think I have a tendency and a proclivity for addiction. So. Mm-hmm. I don't use, I, well, I'm dependent on caffeine because when I don't get caffeine in the morning, I can't put a sentence together, but I don't think it hurts my life. So I don't think I'm addicted. So one thing about addiction is that there's some cost, and, uh, I can afford my caffeine habit happily. Um, but back to this. So then 20 years clean, I thought, you know what, I haven't solved it, and nobody has. It's really complicated and interesting, the neuroscience. But maybe I could explain the problem. Maybe I could explain what we do know. Because people would ask me all the time, you know, is there a gene for addiction, or what's a disease, or um, does it skip a generation, or kind of these sort of things. And I I would answer, but I thought, I'm just going to uh, try to explain it. And the purpose of the book, to cut to the chase, is to really shine a spotlight on what is different about the brains of people who go on to become addicts before they ever pick up during their addiction and um, as a result of their drug use. Mm. So that's what the purpose is. And there's a lot of my personal stories in there because, as my editor said, nobody wants to read something all about vegetables, you know. wasn't a huge science fan but but so it's a little bit of a mix and i think that that works for some people i hope it does anyway yeah look i think that you know just sharing your personal journey there certainly um engages myself and and no doubt the listeners as well to understand that hey you're coming from your own experience of a battle with addiction and you know it's sometimes easier for people to relate to people that have walked in their shoes. So if, if I'm suffering addiction and I hear someone like yourself saying, I did and I've gone through it and this is how I, you know, overcome it and this is how I now understand it, we're more likely to listen, aren't we? More likely to engage. Yeah, and I think there are so many people who are suffering either substance addictions like me or other kinds of addictions and that there's such a, a common um, neurobiology and also a common experience that I think drives a lot of that. Hmm. So, and I do, I do hope that understanding is, is maybe even, um, better than a cure. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think certainly, you know, the more information and the more understanding I have in life, um, the better able I am equipped to deal with what I might challenge, whether that's addiction or other challenges. Um, so certainly, you know, having conversations like this are really important. Can you share some um, statistics that you're aware of about addiction uh, in the world today, whether that's US-based or, or worldwide? Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm not great at having all those on the top of my head. I probably should be better. <laughs> but um, I think um, about one in eight adults suffers from a substance use disorder. Uh-huh. And they're unbelievably lethal. So um, 
more damaging than cancer. So your chances of surviving brain cancer, in fact, are higher than your chances of surviving a substance use disorder. Despite a ton of research and a ton of medical and social effort, the chances of dying of an addiction are higher today than they have ever been. Partly that is because we haven't cured it, and also some of the environmental contributions, I think, are increasing. So people mm. use to cope with stress and anxiety and depression, and those things are also epidemic. Yeah, okay. So the reliance on substance, well, substance abuse is higher than it ever has been, um, and it, you, you're likely to um, not have a, a positive end to your life due to substance abuse. Is it sort of higher than other fatality rates at the moment? Um, I think it is the third leading cause of preventable death in the world. Right, yeah. So very, yes, um, very much at the top. The, the cost in lives and in health and in families and in jobs and, you know, communities is uh probably impossible to calculate so many people are touched by it people who are incarcerated are usually there for some drug or alcohol related offense um yeah all kinds of health disabilities and uh living disabilities you know so it's a very very important topic (laughs) Mm -hmm, i'd say so substance when we say a substance abuse disorder um, can we just clarify that a little bit? So you sort of talked about there, which I thought was quite beautiful, is the cost of using outweighed the benefit. So if I have a substance abuse disorder, is that when the cost of me doing something outweighs the benefits of me doing it? I think it is. Um, I, I should, you know, your your intuition is right, and the um, the definitions are changed all the time. So we used to say alcoholic and addiction. I sort of think those are or addict. I think those are simpler. Uh, then we said um, substance use disorders. We've gone back and forth about dependency versus abuse, and I think um, that's a short way of saying we haven't been able to nail down exactly what it is yeah yeah and so if we don't know giving it different names doesn't really help i think it's used in lieu of understanding sometimes Hmm. um one thing i can say about it is that it is perfectly normal to take drugs or do other things that change the way we think or feel or behave so to alter our experience yes with a, a substance and we've been doing that since before humans have been humans and other animals do it too my, my favorite story is of a um, species of ants that supposedly That's give cool. up some of their space in the colony where they raise these beetles and it costs them you know they can't have as many ant babies and they got to feed these beetles they got to clean them and clean up after them but uh, the beetles grow some kind of fungus on the back of their little hairy beetle legs, and that <laughs> every once in a while the ants harvest the fungus, they eat it, and they all get really, really slow, and there seems to be no nutritional value to that. So I, I think it is, you know, birds eat fermented berries, elephants will consume alcohol, um, lots of, uh, you know, catnip. I mean, it's it's sort of... It's just the the uh, experience, I guess, on this planet that we mm. like to mess around. So that's not unusual. What's different is um, the amount of the availability and the potency of what's around. So you know, we don't right. have to work so hard to get it off the beetle legs anymore. We can go buy it Any in the, the corner, yeah. and we can buy it really potent stuff. So you know, if you're chewing on cocoa leaves, it's very different than if you're. Um, mainlining cocaine and I think that tends to make it pathological so back to your question these things the way I see them are all on a continuum some people you know maybe abstain and obviously they don't have a problem but that's pretty rare most people use some and they have no problems the benefits outweigh the costs but for a substantial portion at least uh, about 10% but maybe 15 or so um, the there are really dire consequences, and yet they keep 
you know, more and more keep doing it. I keep going back, yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm certainly guilty um, of that myself. What um, that, that availability and potency and the way that we live our lives today, and I was going to go there with you about, you know, the, the history of going out there and, and, you know, taking drugs or whatever it might be to, you know, change our perspective on, on the world. Um, but then we don't become dependent on it. But nowadays it seems like we, yeah, we have that availability, we have that potency and we seemingly don't have any control over doing it quite regularly and consistently. Yeah, and that's kind of the core question of the book, what happens? And um, that is really explained by the fact if that if you take any substance to change the way you think or feel or act, regularly and at high doses, your brain counteracts all those effects. So we go back to coffee, for instance. Mm-hmm. I, When I wake up in the morning, I don't really wake up because I'm really dependent on caffeine. And so my body knows the caffeine is coming. And I am lethargic when I wake up. When I drink caffeine, about two cups, I feel just right. Yeah. I feel now I can put a sentence together. Well, that's how my daughter is, you know, when she wakes up, she wakes up awake. I don't wake up awake. If you take um, benzodiazepines like Xanax or something to feel relaxed and sleep, your brain produces the exact opposite effect, tension, anxiety, and insomnia. If you take opiates to reduce pain and suffering and to sleep, you experience pain and suffering and can't sleep if you whatever you take if you take cocaine to feel a wonderful thrill and uh, excited about the world without cocaine it's dull and flat so the reason that there is this dependency Mm. that develops is because the brain, brain counteracts every single drug that we take to change our feeling state that's interesting and it's yeah it's really good at doing that so it it's a master at adapting and it adapts to maintain homeostasis, which is this mm. neutral feeling state. And so you really can't kind of get away with a habit without becoming dependent, which means when we take away the drug, we feel less good than normal. Right. And this is where we get to, you know, where do we find that? I mean, maybe there's not. I mean, you went abstinence you at the age of 23, I guess, um, pretty much gave it all up, didn't you? Is that right? Yeah, I did. I Cold gave turkey. it all up, except for caffeine. Yeah, I, caffeine. I smoked a few cigarettes here and there, and but no alcohol, no um, no real drugs. You know what I would call a real drug. Yeah, none of the really fun ones. <laughs> no, no, and and that that piece of balance, and I guess this and your research probably shows this too. But from individual to individual, it probably changes. Um, the body can interacting, and that's why I'm always, and I'm guilty of, of taking drugs and, and drinking. But, you know, when I see other people um, become reliant on sleeping pills or something like that, I'm just like, you're actually replacing what your body actually naturally does. So what you're saying is that when we take drugs, your body counteracts it to bring some balance to it. And then when we're suddenly we're without that, we have no more natural right. ability to do that, at least for some That's time. That's exactly right. I mean, a, a heroin addict doesn't use to get high. They haven't gotten high in a long time. Hmm. They use only to not feel miserable. Right. And the misery is deep. Yeah, and I So think, that you misery know, is up, that created sorry to interject there, but is that yeah, misery so if we take heroin, um, you know, first time I imagine it must be amazing, um, and then after a while we just take it to stop that misery. Is it because I don't know how to word this, but is our body creating that misery or is it just our body not creating the stuff that we need to be not miserable? It's creating the misery. It's using neurochemicals to create the misery. If you, if you have, I can give that um, example in about two minutes okay. if you want. It's a little long. So heroin, it's true for every drug, but uh, opiates are really interesting because um, heroin mimics endorphins. And we have um, dozens of chemicals in our brain like endorphins or enkephalins or dynorphins or lots and lots of them that uh, modulate things like pain and mood state and um, actually our sleep 
and are bonding, so they're involved in social play and the bond between parents and children and somewhat learning and memory. So there's a rich pharmacopoeia in our brain of opioid peptides. Mm -hmm. And morphine and heroin all work because they interact with those existing sites. And one reason we have those is to block pain, the natural ones. We use that to block pain in times of stress or danger. It wouldn't be helpful for us to get injured in sort of a high-stress situation and then sit on the ground and think, oh, my gosh, i got to lick my wounds, and, you know, you, you might be run over by a truck. So instead, we have a great way of shutting off the pain within a few seconds and the stress and dealing with it uh, while it's not safe. Hmm. But when we do get safe, it's equally important to be able to feel the pain. Pain is critical for two things. It, it tells us what we shouldn't do. You know, you shouldn't stick your hand in a lion's mouth or something. Um, and then it also helps you recover if you fail that yes. message, you know, so yeah. you, can, you can pay attention. So at the point that you're safe and you're no longer in danger, it's necessary for survival to feel the pain. And mm -hmm. our body has a whole pharmacopoeia that is exactly opposite of the endorphins. These are anti-opiates. And they produce, they shut down opiate effects in no time. So we, because pain is critical for surviving, we can turn on and off pain like on a dime. It's such a fascinating thing because we don't get to do that with our vision or hearing. But those things aren't as necessary for survival as pain is. So pain we can modulate the heck out of. But because of that, when the brain experiences all these high levels of opiate activation from taking drugs, mm -hmm. um, it upregulates the anti-opiates ah, to kind okay. of counteract it. Because think about it, if every day you're wasted, yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell if anything's going on. You know, is there a, a hurricane coming? Did your child get hurt? Um, is there some good news at the door? You wouldn't be able to tell. You'd just be, you know, nodding out on the couch. Mm -hmm. So your brain counteracts that because in order to survive, it knows you need to be able to tell if something happens. And there's a really cool uh, set of research on this whole topic. Um, but at any rate, it, those things produce uh, anxiety and tension and pain sensitivity. So you know how when you're... Um, Sometimes when you have the flu or something, just touching your skin or your joints and it hurts, mm. it's a weird thing. Those things can be mediated by these anti-opiate processes, which are designed to bring you back to the neutral state. And there's no real way to avoid that. Um, if you want to get, if you're an addict and you want to get rid of it, you want to titrate down your dose so that you can unlearn that uh, anti-opiate response, but we're getting way ahead of us. So go on and on. About oh, that's, that's, that's really uh, well explained um, and makes a lot of sense. So what we and this is probably why you see, um, you know, when you start using a substance or, you know, addiction, that at the start it, it's quite good and it feels good, but then in time it doesn't feel the same and you're just doing it and, and still not getting any further benefits because your anti-opiates have increased um, as well. Would that be correct? Yeah. Yes, and, and you just gave a perfect definition of, of addiction. Yeah. That is what addiction is. It is the brain's adaptation to maintain homeostasis, which makes you tolerant to the drug and dependent on it because when you take the drug away, you withdraw. And because of that, you're craving the drug all the time. And tolerance, dependence, and craving are the hallmarks of addiction. Tolerance, dependence, and craving. Hmm. And they come from the brain's adaptation to maintain this neutral state. In other words, there's no free lunch. And if you want a free lunch, um, which, you know, I'm not against, it, wouldn't, it didn't work for me because I use my share, but if you use irregularly and at lower doses, I think you can enjoy it because you're not going to elicit this ad adaptive change. Right. You also would probably want to use uh, not much or not at all during periods of high brain plasticity. So the problem with adolescents so is when, is, yeah, okay, so when we're in our developmental years up to what, yes, 25? 
Yes. And, and you know, the, the more plastic the brain is, the more um, likely it is to be affected by your experiences. That's kind of what plasticity is. Mm-hmm. So prenatally, it's really plastic. That's an important time. But also any time during childhood and during adolescence between uh, puberty and about 25, there's this burst of uh, plasticity that is interestingly and appropriately timed with this burst of finding out who you are and what you want to do with your life. Risk-taking So the reason you're doing all that stuff is because the brain is in this kind of sponge-like place. So um, any impact during that plastic time will have a more uh, lasting effect. That's how kids learn, you know, much quicker than adults. Yeah. Um, so if you wait till you're 26 then you could maybe have a free brunch or something, you know, a little bit. But early on, and in fact, 90% of people who have a substance use disorder begin before they're 18. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So those people that begin before they're 18 or 25 um, and have those experiences at that age are more likely to go on longer in addiction? Than yes, people that start it, later in life, right? Because the tolerance and dependence and craving is sort of built in, while the brain's organization is being laid down. It's like changing the blueprint a little bit, mm. and that change is pretty lasting. It's hard to get over that. So I think one reason. Well, you did it. Well, what's interesting is I got clean at twenty three, so before that twenty five, and I think those two years of plasticity helped you probably Molded. benefited me. So yeah. you can, I think you can develop an addiction much more readily if you're young, but I also think you can recover much more readily if you're young. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So there's some good news and bad news. <laughs> yeah, for the exact same reason. For the exact same reason. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Um, is it likely that some people are, are more prone to addiction than others? I mean, is there any research that can sort of indicate that or is it we're all the same and it just depends on your upbringing experiences, your conditioning and all that sort of thing? No, it's absolutely uh, rock-solid evidence that it's the case that some people are more prone than others. We knew that uh, 60 years ago in adoption studies and twin studies. So if you're born of an alcoholic parent or two, and then you're adopted into a perfectly normal family, if there is such a thing, um, you are still at much higher risk, and vice versa. If you're um, raised by raving alcoholics, but you came from stock that wasn't that way, you're you're at lower risk. There, so uh, Why is kind that? Of a, yeah. It's, well, so that's what I went to, that's what I was going to solve. And there are... Um, we we thought that there was going to be a couple of really important genes that were passed down. We yeah. know it's genetic because of the evidence I just gave you and others, yeah. um, but we don't know the particular genes. And what it looks like to me is that there are thousands of genetic variants, each contributing a very tiny bit of increased or decreased risk. So in the book I say it's like having a, a, a hand of cards. You're holding a thousand cards. Red ones increase your chances and black ones decrease your chances. And high cards are bigger impact than low cards. But because you're carrying a thousand cards, it's really impossible to find those. We have a, a few, maybe um, less than a dozen genes that contribute uh, we, we know they contribute, so some for smoking cigarettes, some for opioid addiction, some for marijuana. But um, even those genes that are pretty big ones, pretty big influences, they're only accounting for about 1% of the explanation. So mm-hmm. 99% of the explanation we don't understand. But we know that a lot of it is genetic. And I know that it sounds... Um, like, geez, what have you guys been doing for 50 years? But uh, it's like anything. I think the closer you look, the more complicated and interesting and rich and nuanced the story is. And that is the case with genetics. So there's definitely a genetic component, definitely interacts with environment. And I think that maybe, and this 
some people would disagree with me, but I think maybe there's as many ways to become an addict as there are addicts. Okay, that's interesting. Interesting statement. Would you say that it's it's uh, more heavily genetics than environment and conditioning, or is it fifty fifty? Yeah, I think I think on average it's fifty fifty. Yeah, I think some people are born with a huge genetic load and they don't need much environment. Yeah. And some people are born with relatively little, but, you know, they use enough drugs and anybody can develop an addiction. So I think looking at the average is not always helpful. But if you took everybody in the world, it's about 50 and 50. I think um, if you have alcoholism or other drug addictions or depression or anxiety in your family, then your genetic risk is a little bit elevated. Um, so you would want to be careful, but also, um, if you grow up around people, you know, in the experience of having, uh, drug dependent parents or a stressful home life, you know, then you're also at increased risk, but it cuts across everything. You know, I had an upper middle class life. I don't have, I have maybe a little whiff here and there in my family history, um, but I think using young was probably what uh, contributed a lot for me. Mm. Yeah, um, interesting stuff. What I had a question there for you, and it's just um, just vanished from my mind about the uh, the addiction there. Yeah, I think they say uh, maybe it'll come to you, but they say you can either be born. Uh, basically an addict waiting to happen or an alcoholic waiting to happen, or you can use a lot. Hmm. And so that's one reason there's such an epidemic because I think there's so many ways to get there. I believe, and I I don't know if your research um, sort of backs this, but some genes uh, remain silent, I guess, in life until they're activated by some circumstance or stressful situation. Is that, does your research go there at all? Well, um, so it's interesting because uh, I I love this question, and I hope I understand it right, but genes are not sort of the um, director uh, telling everybody, you know, what to do and what things to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. a little bit of that, but those are sort of all the boring things, you know, make bone or make muscle or something like that. That's kind of, uh, who cares? But for most genes, they're taking their directions from the environment and from our experiences and from our social and other kinds of interactions. I mean, even our microbiome, our gut bacteria are regulating gene activity, the the light outside, the season, the stress level, um, whether we had broccoli, you know, in the last week, all those things and pretty much everything we do, um, is are turning on and off gene transcription, meaning the gene activity to make the structures that the genes make, the amino acids and the proteins. So the genes are really not um, thought of any longer as the the causal um, factors. I think they're, you know, um, they're on the way to cause, but they're influenced by so much that... uh, that's really a lot. And, and in fact, epigenetics is a new area where we see that gene regulation is due not only to our current experiences or even our past history, you know, how much we drank last week, mm. um, but maybe our parents' and grandparents' experiences. And I think, uh, you know, it's really an elegant, beautiful, and complicated story. So, uh we're still learning quite a lot about it. And that's, you know, it's funny you ask all this because this is what I thought was going to take me seven years to to answer the question for, you know. Mm. Yeah, no, it's um, it's fascinating how those those genes might work. And I guess this might, I mean, you talked about, about um, you know, gut bacteria and the microbiomes in our system. And, um, you know, if, if you're in better health, if you've got a better diet and all those things are much more better internally, I assume that would influence our ability to overcome addiction 
I yeah, I think um, overcomes an interesting word because um, okay. you asked something like this earlier, and I guess I feel like I'm not dependent anymore because I don't take the drugs, so I'm not withdrawing when I don't have them, which would be a dependent. But I feel like I still am the person who lost so much control, and I'm not convinced I wouldn't still. And I, you know, this is, in a way, it's not uh, popular, I guess, to say, but I think it is supported by the data. There's not a lot of people who become... um, who have a different response after going down the road so far, you know, that they, like, I totally lost control, but, you know, I, I basically carved myself out. I, I just, there was nothing much left of me when I ended up in this, uh, in a treatment center at 23. And I think, um, like sometimes I'll, someone will ask me, well, don't you want to just one glass of wine or something? And, and, Maybe this is self-fulfilling, maybe not, but honestly, no. Who wants one glass? What is the point of a glass? <laughs> to me, alcohol's medicine, and I want the whole effing bottle, you know, really. And I don't mean it like that. It's just, it is seriously the way I'm built. Mm. I, uh, I just don't like, I think moderation is um, is interesting. My husband is a regular drinker. He doesn't. You know, he doesn't get over, he doesn't understand me and I don't understand him, you know. So I'm not so sure. I think. Well, that's obviously uh, very much an individual thing too then because, yeah, you know, you hear a lot of people that go through and maybe, maybe it's not, maybe your husband's never been fully dependent or, you know, addicted as such, um, but just enjoys the drink. Right. He never has. And And I don't think he's got that level of control or ability. And I guess that's. Not then up to the individual. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that is outside of our control personally. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know this, but I actually, I think I do know this, and I think the neuroscience supports this. Yeah. I liked alcohol way better than he does. And it's such an mm-hmm. irony because the people who can use are the people who don't want to so much, you know, or as much. I mean, I, I was really, and a lot of people do this, give up everything, give yeah. up their families, give up their jobs, give up their health and their life so that they can escape with drugs. And those are, you know, those are the ones that can't. And then the people who can take it or leave it are free to go right ahead. Don't, don't and enjoy I, it on you know, that, level, on that same level. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. How do you how do you use neuroscience to to do all this research? Like, I, mean, I don't want to go too much into the weeds of neuroscience, but um, maybe you can just sort of skim over the top of of how you do your research. Yeah, my research is is probably all weeds from your perspective. <laughs> yeah. um, right now, I'm in. I have a couple projects going on. Uh, one, I'm interested in sex differences and binge drinking, and it looks like. Um, in some ways, women are more susceptible to binge drinking to escape stress or anxiety. And men binge drink for a different reason, maybe, to enjoy it. But women are kind of avoiding what they don't like, and men are getting what they do like. And I'm interested in the um, genetic contributors to that. Binge drinking is obviously a bit of an issue. It's a bit of an issue, and it's also a really uh, good way to become an alcoholic. Um especially if you're binge drinking, as most people are, as adolescents. So it's a really dangerous practice. If you if you want to be able to enjoy alcohol when you're 40, don't binge drink when you're 16 because you're almost, you know, guaranteeing that you wouldn't That's be interesting. able to. Yeah. yeah. I was definitely it, a binge drinker. Yeah. Well, and you're, but you're, well, anyway, I don't know what you're doing, but... Um, the, Not uh, much difference. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's and another way to say that more positively, maybe, is that if you want to really be cause, so, here's the example. And remind me to come back to the word we saying, but it's like listening to music really, really loud. Hmm. I mean, it sounds great at the time, but if you do it enough, your ears are deaf, yeah, and you can't really appreciate it yeah. the same. 
Yeah. And and you can't fix that. And especially if you listen really loud, no, it's not true. Your ears are not more plastic when you're young than when you're old. So I, I don't think there's any plasticity in these ears, yeah. you know, in your ear. Yeah. Um, but so it might be the case that because you've been string, drank a lot, you your experience of pleasure is sort of dampened or mm. deafened a little mm. bit. And therefore, uh, in drug or non-drug stimuli you have to sort of take more and and step on the pedal a little harder yeah and whereas if you had left that uh, kind of nascent state where the 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 system was as highly sensitive as possible and just you know sort of teased it every once in a while um, in the long run you might experience more pleasure hmm. Hmm. yeah it's interesting stuff no, but the other thing we were getting to before that, oh, my other kind of research, no wonder we changed the topic, it was too much weeds. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> no. Not the reason. Go back there. I want to go back there. Well, so then the other big project I'm interested in is that, um, this gets back to something you asked. So we know that um, people who are prone to developing a problem hmm. have a different, uh, quantitatively different subjective experience right at the beginning so i drank alcohol at 13 i felt like i was transformed you know into a much uh, more alive person i mean it was really a profound experience some people who the first time they drink even if they're 13 they think yeah it's okay you know or, or you know i felt sick and i didn't really love it that initial subjective experience or early subjective experience for opiates, for stimulants, for alcohol wow. is a really good predictor about mm. whether or not you are at risk. Okay. So the people who are the lightweights early on, they don't have such risk as the people like me who could drink more than a half a gallon of wine and keep going. Um, so, And I loved it. So I, I'm interested in the genes that predict mm. that initial sensitivity, either liking it or disliking it, because those can tell something, tell us something about the slippery slope that uh, we may or may not be on. So you try and track those so, genes that are related to that? Yes, to the initial subjective response to opiates. Wow. And alcohol and also benzos. So I'm interested in the, those have some common features, those three yeah. drugs. Yeah. And so I want to know about what are the, why do some of us really love those right away? And, and a substantial portion don't love them. It's, you know, they don't like them. So, so there's a group of people that don't really love them, but they can learn to love them if you take enough. And well, I think people, most bodies biologically, you know, we take substances like that and immediately we feel ill. Like taking that first puff of a cigarette or drinking, you know, your body reacts to it, doesn't it? Like, and not you? Not everybody. No, hmm. I felt when I first drank, I felt this great, warm, euphoric feeling. It was almost like, you know, after sex or something. I mean, it was such a, which I didn't know at the time, but uh, it was such a uh, a wonderful, connected, whole, complete feeling. Okay, that's interesting. And uh, that was really from the beginning. I mean, it was stunning. And it's interesting you relate to that. I mean, I remember when I first had a drink and, and I guess, yeah, it was kind of fun and enjoyable, but I was sick not long after the, the first few beers. Um, and that wasn't really that pleasant, I don't think. But I can't really connect to that moment, you know. Yeah, no, and I drank a ton, hmm. and I did not get sick. Yeah, well, okay, interesting. I, yeah. So what, to wrap this conversation up, and I think it's been an amazing conversation, I've really enjoyed it, where do we go from here? I mean, if we're out there, either ourselves or someone that we love, um, is suffering some sort of addiction, and I guess... And we didn't really touch on it, but I, I really feel that addiction can be related to, you know, addiction to uh, binge watching TV or shopping or playing on your mobile phone. Um, I guess it's it's all somehow connected there. But uh, and correct me if I'm wrong in that statement. No, you're not wrong. No. Um, so how do we how do we go about it from here? Like if we're you know yeah. addicted and and yeah. want to heal, balance it. Yeah, I think, Lee, that um, addiction is a state or a disease that comes from and thrives in and creates alienation. Yeah. And that 
recovery is a process of connecting with ourselves and each other and probably something bigger than ourselves and each other. But but really, um, I think the antithesis of alienation is what we have to strive for. And I think one reason that we're in such an epidemic is because we are becoming more and more alienated. I mean, you mentioned the phones, and it's... it's um, I was talking to, a, I think, a 29-year-old recently, and he stopped using social media probably seven or eight years ago when mm. he saw kind of what it was doing to his friends. And, um, you know, it's it's worth noting that we have all these so-called friends, but we have no connections. You know, it's, it's really an alienating experience. So what uh, I think we need to do more to recognize our need for honest and true connection and that's not always pretty and you know nice looking and happy i just mean like reality and showing up for each other yeah and um and i think that is a something like an antidote i mean not an easy one but but i think it it might help yeah, and it's, it's, I talked to someone a while back now about, you know, the evolution of um, taking opiates or, or getting high. And, you know, in our communities, we would be in our tribes or whatever, and we'd do it all together. Um, mm-hmm. And that was it. You know, we'd do it once off every blue moon or whatever mm-hmm. it might be and have that, that mm-hmm. exciting time. But then because we're in those tribes and, you know, all connected and on top of each other, that's when mm-hmm. we did it. There was, and I think there's still tribes that do it like that. You know, they celebrate together and then they go about their normal day-to-day lives as they would. Whereas now it's so easy for us to be isolated, be in our own little box, wherever that might be, and um, drink day after day or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think um, in terms of our evolutionary history, using alone is relatively new. And I think that it is um, sort of a big part of this uh, spiral to addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so and I know um, there's a book by, I think it's Johan, Johan Hari. He's written um, mm-hmm. Lost Connections, um, and he talks a lot about that and about you know um, overcoming depression more so than addiction. But I guess it's related. Is that um, you know go out there and, and recreate those connections with with other people, with with nature, with life. Um, and stop mm. isolating ourselves because it's about those relationships. Um, so that's sort of similar to what you were saying there as well. Yeah, I think it is. And is it abstinence for everyone? Like, is it? I mean, can it be case by case? Like, could I go? Yeah, out, you know? um, I think it can be. Um, well, so I should say, there's not a lot of great evidence that people can dial it back once they get to a certain point. Um, but, there is some evidence that um, so there there's a big debate about this there's that's why we go to back to the definitions so if you say a substance use disorder versus substance abuse so if you're just abusing like uh, you know you might be able to say okay I'm not going to I'm not going to for someone like me um, trying not to I would just sort of use more I, I don't know how to say it, but I'm like this with the diet. You know, if I go on a diet, I always gain 10 pounds. Yeah, it's right. just don't tell me I can't have a cupcake or whatever. So yeah. uh, it's just the way I am. Um, but for some people, that's possible. But I would say they probably were not really addicted. They just had some brief consequences, you know, and they bring it back. I think that's interesting. there yeah, is yeah. some yeah. evidence for young people growing out of it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people who go kind of wild in university or something, and then they grow up and some of those, a substantial number go on to have a problem because remember 90% begin before they're uh, 18, but, but some of those seem to be able to kind of grow out of it. There's not a lot of those. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't count. Like it's not a great bet that you're going to be one of those. You can go completely wild, Um, but your chances are higher if you don't have it in your family or depression or anxiety. And if you don't um, binge and withdraw, you know, if you, if you try to not get too high of concentrations and also if you're a little bit older and you grow out of it before you're 25, so, um, in general, most evidence points to the fact that 
most people like me die uh, either high or locked up, you know. Yeah. So, mm. um, or withdrawing. So it's not, it's a pretty lethal disorder. It's not, uh, it's not playing. So with those anti-opiates that you were talking about earlier on in this episode, in this interview, if we stop um, mm. using whatever it might mm-hmm. be, does that start to balance out as well then through what you've seen in your studies? Absolutely. Yeah. So the brain will unlearn, right? If it doesn't, it wants to maintain homeostasis. Yeah, so yeah. if there's no opiate there, the point, the hard thing is that most people can't tolerate the state without them because the, it's the so miserable. The messy middle. Yeah. Mm. So you would want to kind of titrate down, but you can definitely unlearn that. And uh, opiates are not, you know, there's not so much lasting damage there. So you can get back pretty, pretty well. I know someone who was a, um, a heroin addict and a stripper and uh, really a mess by the time she was 19 and then uh, quit and now she's a rocket scientist you know so she's, <laughs> literally cool. so she's fine yeah it is cool well it sounds like your story too like I'm, I'm really impressed that you know you went through all that 23 and that, now you're a neuroscientist it's, it's incredible to me well that's nice of you thank you it is it's an amazing journey um Look, I suppose there's there's a lot to this. I want to encourage everyone to get out there and, and pick up a copy of your book if you've been interested in this conversation like I have. Uh, the book is Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to uh, Judy's work, but Judy, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing not only your story but the, the research and the work and so openly too because um, it's been a great conversation, I think, really um, inspiring and, and inspirational. Yeah, Yeah, it's a pleasure for me. It's nice to, to meet you and your audience. So, guys, you can check it out at the uh, hiddenwhy.com. This will be episode, and I'm just going to it now. This will be episode 804, um, which will be launched um, yeah, sometime in July. But um, if you're listening to this, you've probably already realized that. Uh, 804 with Judy Grizel. And Judy, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you. Until next time, guys. Peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon